Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Indictments leading to death threats and danger. The lead starts right now. A federal judge threatened and specific contact information for Georgia grand jurors plastered throughout right-wing websites. How Donald Trump's legal troubles are leading to further security issues and fear of violence and heartbreaking accounts from Hawaii as wildfire victims are starting to find the remains of their family members. But we, what he had seen was not just a body, but the body of a 15-year-old kid who had way more life ahead of him. Plus, new warnings on North Korea possibly preparing to test a missile capable of reaching the United States. I'm going to ask White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby about those plans as President Biden prepares to hold the post the world leaders most concerned from South Korea and Japan. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're going to start today with our law and justice lead and the high price being paid for some individuals for just doing their civic duty. Today, police in Atlanta are trying to figure out how to best protect the grand jurors who earlier this week voted to indict former President Donald Trump and 18 other co-defendants. Unlike federal cases, indictments in Fulton County, Georgia, which are made public, include the names of all of the jurors who served on the case. And now those jurors' names, plus photographs, social media information, and even some home addresses, not all of which are even necessarily the right ones, that's now all circulating on social media, with experts saying that some anonymous users are calling for violence against members of the jury. CNN's Paula Reed starts off our coverage today with a closer look at the security risks facing not just the jury, but also a federal judge in a separate Trump case. Tonight, Georgia residents who served on the grand jury that indicted former President Trump for trying to overturn the 2020 election are now facing threats and getting doxxed online. These people were called to serve and do their civic duty by serving on that grand jury, and now they've been basically put on the X by these disclosures. Names, pictures, profiles, and even home addresses purporting to belong to the grand jurors are now circulating on far-right websites like 4chan and other social media platforms. Their names were published on page 9 of the indictment, a public document, as is the practice in Georgia. But experts say... This is really a quirk of law in the state of Georgia that the names of grand jurors come out with the indictment. Uh, So this is really the first time we've seen this kind of thing come out in a national case. What I'm going to do now... CNN cannot independently verify the details, and it's unclear if the information circulating online is that of the actual grand jurors or just people of the same name. 
Former Georgia State Senator and Attorney Jen Jordan testified in this case, and she says these threats might impede prosecutors' ability to find a trial jury. Everyone is going to know who they are. Their lives are going to be turned upside down. And so just to be able to sit a jury um, of people who would be even willing to put, you know, their lives on the line um, is going to be really, really difficult. And it's not just the grand jury under threat. Judge Tanya Chutkin, who is overseeing the federal election interference case against Trump, received a threatening voicemail earlier this month. According to court documents, a Texas woman called Chutkin's chambers on August 5th and left a message threatening to kill anyone who went after former President Trump. She also allegedly threatened to kill Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, as well as people in the LGBTQ community. She is now in custody. Thank you very much. Over the last week, Trump has repeatedly posted to social media, speaking directly to the Fulton County grand jurors and Judge Chutkin, saying, Will someone please tell the Fulton County grand jury that I did not tamper with the election? And saying that Chutkin obviously wants me behind bars. Very biased and unfair. We've also learned that Trump's longtime ally and sometimes attorney Rudy Giuliani went down to Florida in April to plead with the former president to help him with Giuliani's seven-figure legal debt. And, Jake, we've learned that Trump offered some vague assurances that he would help. And so far, the only assistance Giuliani has received is money from the Trump-aligned PAC, Save America. They paid off over $300,000 for one specific bill But one of Giuliani's lawyers said in court yesterday, he doesn't expect any more help with those debts. Hmm. All right. Paula Reed, thanks so much. A CNN original series, by the way, looks into the evolution, devolution, whatever you want to call it, of Rudy Giuliani. It's called Giuliani. What happened to America's mayor? It's a good question. That's Saturday night at 8 Eastern, only here on CNN. Joining us now to discuss Michael Moore, the former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. Uh, Michael, I want to get your reaction Uh, to the alleged personal information of some of these jurors being posted online. I understand when someone's indicted in in Georgia, the names of the grand jurors are included on that indictment. Knowing the sensitivity of this case, though, I wonder if more should have been done ahead of time to to prevent something like this. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. I, I do think there could have been some steps taken to maybe ask the court to seal the indictment or do some things like that. Um, we, we do have sort of a balancing of the public's right to know and certainly an accused right to know who sat in, in, uh, on the grand jury. And if, if you think about it, it's important for an accused to know that because they can determine whether or not a grand juror might have been related to one of the victims in a case or something. So there's a legitimate reason that lawyers and, and defendants need to know that and, and that, 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 that they have a right to, to look at it. But uh, certainly in this case, I think there were things that could be done. Look, judges and prosecutors, we, we expect uh, this kind of thing to happen, this nonsense to happen. But the everyday layman who serves uh, for a pennies a day, really, uh, on, a, on a grand jury, uh, it, it should not be subject to this. And so probably the best thing that can happen right now is for there to be some swift action taken to both protect those people if, in fact, those addresses are correct and that personal information uh, is deemed to be correct, and then uh, to, to also go after folks who may be sending messages or in, intending to do harm. It's, it is public information uh, that uh, is accessible at the courthouse. So 
the fact that the names are out there, I don't think there will be much that can be done but other than some protection. But specific threats, voicemails, uh, emails, those types of things, uh, certainly somebody sitting out in front of somebody's house in a car, um, they need to be addressed quickly by law enforcement to send a message that it just can't be can't be tolerated. I, I have to say, when the indictment was released, I was surprised to see the names of the grand jurors uh, on there. Uh, I'm not as familiar with the uh, Georgia legal process as you are. Um, are they? Really, I know there's a major gang trial going on right now uh, in, in Georgia. I believe you're still in, in uh, jury selection in voir dire. Right. Are, are, the names are generally just released like that, even if even if a, a gang member is is on trial. Yeah, generally the the indictments will have uh, listed at the very front. You know that the citizens of the state of Georgia, County of Fulton, charge and accuse, and it will have in fact li- the the every grand jury that serves those who are not present for the day of the deliberation or for the vote, their name will be uh, strucken through. But the um, but but otherwise they'll be on the indictment. And again. There are reasons that a defendant needs to know that, and, and um, so that's, that's important. In this case, and that may have been one of the reasons that it may have been uh, more appropriately suited in, in federal court, um, but, you know, something should have been done, I believe, some consideration should have been given to some way to protect it. There are ways to ask the court to seal it. There's ways yeah. to redact some information. Uh, that clearly wasn't done here. A source tells CNN that negotiations are, are still ongoing between Trump's legal team and the Fulton County District Attorney's Office about his surrender. What kinds of details do you think they're likely negotiating? Well, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not there'll be mugshots and photographs and fingerprints and all this kind of thing. There'll be a question about what location he should report to, uh, whether or not that'll be the jail or some other location for security purposes. There'll have to be some coordination clearly between the Secret Service and law enforcement there to work out that surrender. Um, I, I hope that this goes off uh, sort of like just a puff of wind and nobody really knows about it. I think that's better for the Secret Service. That ultimately is better for local law enforcement, for the former president to come in, uh, be processed quickly, and to then uh, be shuttled back out to await arraignment at a later date. Um, but, you know, where we are now, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I expect that there'll be some effort to to either make a statement about it one way or another by the former president. But uh, this, we, we have to admit, and, and I think that's one of the frustrating things about this case. We all want to say that it's, you know, we're, he's going to be treated like everybody else. The fact is, it's a former president of the United States. Right. And so we have to make some considerations and concessions as we, as we do this to keep everybody else safe. Yeah, especially in terms of his security and safety, right. which he's entitled to. Obviously, uh, there are threats against him all the time. Michael Moore, thanks so much. Appreciate it. I want to bring in uh, Julia Kayyem. Uh, she's a former assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Julia, when it comes to this threat against uh, federal Judge Chutkin that Paula reported on a minute ago, do you think there are enough security measures in place right now to protect federal judges? Yes, I mean, never, never enough because they obviously consider themselves private citizens. And in the old world, when no one knew a judge's name and they weren't attacked uh, specifically by a former president, U.S. Marshal Service takes lead, not the Secret Service, nor even local police, that the Marshal Service exists essentially to protect the judiciary. Uh, They will do home assessments. Um, They will do uh, uh, um, uh, uh, personal assessments and give personal security to the judge if necessary. Uh, And then there's things that the judges, as I'm I'm married to a judge that would uh, know what to do. Don't put your kids on social media. Don't put, you know, don't put things in um, 
on social media that give your existence sort of in that give the kids existence in real time. Look, we know it's not just the judges. It is the entire family and others that are related to the judges that are at risk. Uh, but this is new in terms of the threat environment because the judges are being specifically mentioned by uh, the former president in these cases. The Atlanta Police Department uh, says that its members are working on helping the Fulton County Sheriff uh, with any potential yeah. safety and security issues for the grand jurors uh, in that case. How do you go about protecting 26 people and their yeah. families as they try to live their normal lives? How do you assess what threats yeah. are real and, and, and what's just hot air? Okay, so you do two things. I mean, one is, so one is defense, that the grand jurors now need to know that this is circulating on these horrible websites where they don't know what the threat environment um, is, and then, um, you know, tell them to be vigilant and also uh, provide them with the kind of security that they may need, at least for the time being. Uh, some of them may be picked out based by based on race. So, you know, if all the African-American grand jurors are picked out, you want to give them uh, uh, specific uh, security. So then you go on offense. Every single one of these people uh, that is out there online doing whatever, threatening not just words, but threatening individual or grand jurors or the grand jury as a whole is committing a federal crime, or at least uh, 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 there is evidence to suggest that they want to undermine the judicial system. And that is where it's going to take uh, prosecutors and investigators to uh, investigate them, to let them know that there is uh, uh, no goofing around anymore, that this is we know um, we know what the threat environment could be for these grand jurors. I have to say one thing about Georgia. Th th this is not a statute that requires it. This is just case law and Supreme Court case law. So there might you know, th this is um, this is something that. Georgia officials are going to have to deal with in terms of not just the protection of these grand jurors, which may be too late, uh, but of course the jurors coming up. Uh, I, I'm all for transparency. I'm all for public information. Uh, but uh, as Michael was saying, you know, these are ordinary citizens doing their civic duty. They didn't sign up for this. Um, and neither did this country, for example. So, uh, um, and so we need to be, take it seriously. Julia Kayam, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the horror playing out in Hawaii. Some wildfire victims are coming back to their properties to find everything gone. Others trying somehow to cope with the reality of loved ones lost. Some of their heart-wrenching stories are next. Plus, as gas prices hit a 10-month high, the looming factor that could make matters even worse. And from bomb threats and hoax phone calls, the disturbing activity recently directed at religious institutions. Who might be behind it? Back with our national lead and the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century. Of the 111 individuals so far confirmed dead on the island of Maui, only five names have been released by officials, while some families share stories of their loved ones with CNN. Melva Benjamin, uh, for example, was a beloved grandmother whose family says she likely died while trying to reach a shelter. Buddy Jantock's granddaughter remembers him as a, quote, good grandpa who loved singing and playing the guitar and the drums. Frankie Trejos loved animals and was found shielding his roommate's dog, Sam. Carol Hartley's sister says she was known for her smile and her fun personality. As CNN's Gloria Pazmina reports, some children were also lost. On Maui, hope giving way to despair, as some of the missing are moved to the list of those lost. You know, 
have we found remains that are maybe smaller than other remains? I'm not going to sit here and sensationalize that. But the answer to that is yes. What I'm talking about is children. The official death toll from the wildfires is now well over 100, with possibly more than 1,000 people still missing. Josue Garcia lost his 15-year-old brother in the fire. That's him. After trying in vain to run home to save him. Everybody was saying, get out, get out. Don't go that way, not that way. Leave. Even though I was four or five miles away, I could feel the heat. After the fire, his father found his brother's body in the burned rubble of the family home. And what we saw was where he always slept. What, we, what he had seen was not just a body, but the body of a 15-year-old kid who had way more life ahead of him. Then they took his remains to authorities. Josue is now turning his pain into poetry. What could I do? No power I hold. I'm lost and I'm found. I'm lost all around. We're losing our town. The sheer scale of the devastation has impacted everyone on the island. No one has ever seen this that is alive today. Not this size, not this number, not this volume, and we're not done. Identifying the dead remains a difficult task. There are often no fingerprints, and many remains are unrecognizable. Relatives of the missing are being asked for DNA samples. The search teams are also deeply affected. We have to do this right and realize that the responders that are going out there are recovering their loved ones and members of their families. Those search and rescue teams now scouring the burn zone of more than 2,000 homes and businesses yeah. as the magnitude of the loss sinks in. It's hard to take in. And even as authorities delicately search the rubble for human remains, some residents say they've been approached by real estate speculators. Reawakening memories of historical wrongdoing, including colonization and overdevelopment, and further stoking locals' fears of losing their land. Governor Josh Green reacted Wednesday to those fears and mounting frustration over reports of unsolicited calls from outsiders looking to buy damaged properties. My office will work to block any of those kind of predatory transactions. Now, Jake, it's a very different thing to take in the damage for yourself. It's soul-crushing to watch the piles and piles of rubble that is left. Some positive developments here. You can see behind me there is a crew of a utility company that is working on the power lines, and that is a positive sign of improvement. But I do want to stress that full recovery here is likely years away. And as the attention perhaps begins to turn away, there will still be thousands of people here in Lahaina who will need the help of government, but who will also do what Hawaiians do, band together, help each other out, all in the spirit of ohana, which means family. Jake. All right, CNN's Gloria Pasmino in Lahaina for us. Thank you so much. Uh, emergency response expert and director of Global Operations for the Pacific Disaster Center. Dr. Aaron Huey joins us now. Dr. Huey, so you live on Maui. You've been involved in many disaster responses in the past. What has your personal experience been like? So aloha, Jake. Um, really, this is unprecedented. And for us, although I've spent 25 years working disasters around the world, this is something that I don't think anyone can be prepared for. 
It's amazing devastation, and there isn't a resident here who isn't deeply impacted uh, directly by this event. The scope of this tragedy, it's frankly, it's hard to grasp. More than 1,000 people still missing, uh, and as we reach the ninth day, it's becoming more likely the death toll is going to keep climbing. We've heard Hawaii officials say words such as, or use terms like instant cremation, uh, is it possible many of the families with missing loved ones may, may never find out actually what happened to their loved ones? You know, I really can't speak directly to that. I do know that we've got teams locally from the state and the federal government that are here to support the recovery. And our focus has been on, one, making sure that the survivors have the relief that they need, the food, water, shelter, and, and love, and then making sure that the teams can identify those who are lost and, and really start to prepare for what will be a very long recovery. Dr. Aaron Huey, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And as victims of the wildfire try to figure out their next steps, you can help. Head to CNN.com impact for options to donate. You can also text the word Hawaii to this number, 707070. North Korea has a missile capable of striking most of the world, including mainland America. Coming up, new warnings about immediate plans to test that missile. I'll talk about it next with White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. In our world lead, a South Korean spy agency's concerning report on North Korea. North Korea is reportedly preparing an intercontinental ballistic missile test launch. And that and other provocations around tomorrow's Camp David summit between the U.S., South Korea, and Japan. That is not even the worst of it. CNN's Will Ripley dives into the spy report for us now, which shows how a growing alliance between North Korea and Russia could have major global consequences. All eyes on the skies over North Korea. South Korea's spy agency telling lawmakers in Seoul Pyongyang is planning a provocative show of force including an intercontinental ballistic missile launch. The military is detecting signs of possible ICBM launch preparations, monitoring active movement of ICBM launch-related vehicles in Pyongyang, expecting drills, including tactical nuclear-capable missile launches in the coming days. The latest intelligence as North Korea faces growing international pressure. U.S. and South Korean military exercises begin next week. North Korea considers the annual drills a dress rehearsal for war. Those drills coming as President Joe Biden prepares to host the leaders of Japan and South Korea on Friday at Camp David. China and North Korea high on the agenda. At the U.N. Security Council, the first meeting in more than five years on North Korean human rights. Good morning. My name is Lee Kim. A North Korean defector telling the council, the government turns our blood and sweat into a luxurious life for the leadership and missiles that blast our hard work into the sky. The U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights says many North Koreans face extreme hunger, acute medicine shortages, claiming the U.N. and NGOs remain barred from the country. Two nations not barred from North Korea, Russia and China. Two patrons with power to veto biting Security Council sanctions. Both sent high-level delegations to Pyongyang last month. Leader Kim Jong-un showing off his latest ICBMs. And drones, analysts say, bear striking resemblance to U.S. military models. Suspicion is growing. North Korea may have plans to secretly provide weapons for Russia's war in Ukraine. So far, no hard evidence. 
but South Korea's spy agency expects growing military cooperation, warning of the possible transfer of Russia's core nuclear and missile technology to North Korea. For nations trying to contain the North Korean nuclear threat, analysts say the worst may be yet to come. Will Ripley, CNN. And our thanks uh, to Will Ripley there joining us now to discuss, uh, along with other topics, National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House, retired U.S. Navy Admiral uh, John Kirby. Thanks so much for for joining us. Appreciate it. So the spy report uh, that we were just talking about says North Korea may have plans to secretly provide weapons for Russia's war in Ukraine, while Russia could possibly transfer core and nuclear missile technology to North Korea. Um, is the North Korean nuclear threat getting more serious? They continue to try to improve it, Jake. There's no question about that. And we are worried about these uh, improving links between Russia and China. In fact, just last week, we downgraded some information and made it public that we know that the Russian defense minister, Shoigu, was recently in Pyongyang to try to see if he could get some sort of military support uh, for the war in Ukraine. And obviously, it's possible that the North Koreans could want something in return. So we're watching this very, very closely. The State Department today says North Korea has not responded to U.S. outreach when it comes to Travis King. That's the U.S. soldier who crossed the DMZ into North Korea. In the past, North Korea has used American soldiers um, who defect as propaganda tools. Do you see them, uh, the North Koreans, as trying to use Travis King uh, as a bargaining chip, as a propaganda tool? How are they using him at all? They certainly could, Jake. We haven't seen any indication that that's exactly what's uh, afoot here, but certainly would not be out of character for them. Uh, What we're focused on is trying to make sure we can get information about him. We don't even know where he is right now. We don't know the conditions he's being held. We don't know his physical condition, his health. And we have made it clear to the North Koreans through various channels that we want to know those things and we want him back. We want him back. He's an American soldier. We want to get him back safely. But unfortunately, we don't know exactly uh, where they have him or what they plan on doing with him. Speaking of wanting to get an American service member uh, back safely, Lieutenant Ridge Alconis has now been in a Japanese prison uh, for more than a year. Uh, He had a medical emergency, he says, uh, and got into a car accident there and and, and killed some uh, Japanese. Um, He says he was not treated the same. The family says that he was not treated the same way uh, that normally individuals are treated. Uh, And and President Biden uh, met with Brittany Alconis uh, after the State of the Union. Yes, he did. um, And he gave her a big hug and there was a picture online. Is President Biden going to bring this up with the Japanese prime minister? We have routinely and continue to routinely talk about uh, Lieutenant Alconis in this case with Japanese officials. It happens at levels uh, from all the way from him and on down. Uh, And our ambassador is gauged on this. I mean, we are still working this out with uh, the Japanese to see what what's the realm of the possible here to make sure that, you know, uh, rule of law is respected, but uh, that uh, but that we make our concerns clear. Um, yesterday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke on the phone with Paul Whelan, uh, another detained American. Uh, this one considered by the State Department to be unfairly detained. Um, he's the U.S. Marine uh, in, who's in Russia. has been there for more than four years in a Russian prison. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, also, also wrongfully detained by the Russians earlier this year. Um, we've reported that the Biden administration is searching for offers that could entice uh, Russia to release both of these Americans, maybe a prisoner swap of sorts. Um, we're, you know, we've, we've reported that the Russians want some Russian spies. Uh, we don't have any. We're asking allies if they have any in their prisons. Maybe there's a swap that could happen. Is there, is there any meaningful progress in this? I, I wish I could tell you that we've got a, a deal in hand and, and, uh, and that the Russians have agreed to it. 
Um, that's not the case. Now, that's not for lack of trying. And it's not like we haven't put proposals on the table to try to get Mr. Whalen and, quite frankly, uh, Mr. Gershkovich back home to their families. Uh, but we just don't have anything to report out right now. We just learned that a Moscow court has charged Russian-born U.S. citizen Gene Spector uh, with espionage. He, he was already serving a jail term there for bribery. Do you know anything about that? No, I'm afraid uh, we're, we're still digging into that kind of reporting, too. We just don't have any updates. Last week, I spoke to a Gold Star mom who lost her son uh, at Abbey Gate two, two years ago uh, in Afghanistan, Staff Sergeant Taylor Hoover. Um, she's testified to Congress. In her view, the Biden administration lied to her about how her son died. Um, here is what I, she said when I asked her what would she want to say to President Biden if she could. He needs to come out um, and say, yeah, I made a mistake. I chose wrong. Um, I was looking for a photo op and uh, I messed up. That's what he needs to do. Do you think President Biden is willing to meet with any of these Gold Star families or talk publicly uh, more about what happened at Abbey Gate two well, he, years ago? He certainly has talked about uh, Afghanistan and the decision to withdraw and the evacuation and how it was conducted. Uh, we have conducted after action reports. We've shared information with Congress and the public to the degree that we can. Um, the president and the first lady uh, continue to grieve with all the Gold Star families, uh, especially those uh, who were killed uh, in that terrible day at Abbey Gate. Uh, there's not a day that goes by that he and the First Lady aren't thinking about them, mourning with them, and understanding the loss and the sacrifice and the anguish that they're still feeling. And you could hear it in, in that soundbite, clearly there. And we understand that, and we're going to stay with them and support them for the rest of their lives, as we should, as, we, as they deserve to. But pulling out of Afghanistan was the right decision for our national security. We're not now bogged down in a war in Afghanistan. We have been able to free up sources, resources and manpower to be prepared for other national security concerns, such as the ones we're going, we have in the Indo-Pacific and that we anticipate being able to talk about at Camp David. That war is over. It, it, it should have been ended. Uh, and the mission for which the troops were sent there had been accomplished. Um, she said, uh, Staff Sergeant Taylor Hoover's uh, mom said that he reported to her that it was just chaos, the line of the chain of command was unclear, that they were sitting ducks. And we've heard other things uh, since then, I think I, I understand that the, you'd rather talk and the president would rather talk about the decision to end the war in Afghanistan. I think a lot of people are concerned about how it happened, the implementation of the withdrawal uh, and, and why it seems so chaotic and, and why uh, warnings about suicide bombers might not have been heeded and, and the rest. Oh, look, I think Central Command, who was the overarching military command, did a pretty exhaustive investigation of this, Jake. And uh, and they determined uh, that barring any decision that could have impacted mission success, there wasn't much that could have been done to pre- prevent that attack from coming, as tragic as it was. Uh, and there was a lot of confusion outside the gate. Uh, but inside that gate, you know, the rules of engagement were clear. The commanders were on the ground. Uh, at the moment of the explosion, there were quite a few uh, commanders there uh, in charge and leading. And, of course, everybody responded uh, bravely after the attack. So I, I understand, again, the pain and we understand that the anguish. Uh, nobody can replace the loss that these families have suffered. Uh, but there was an exhaustive investigation. CENTCOM and the Army tried to learn from that. Uh, and we'll, you know, we'll continue to carry those lessons with us forward. Quick question on Ukraine. I want you to uh, listen to what you said in July about sending American-made uh, F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. 
Now, look, the F-16s will uh, will get there probably towards the end of the year, uh, but it's not our assessment that the F-16s alone would be enough to, to turn the tide here. You said probably towards the end of the year. Um, today, Ukraine said it does not expect U.S.-made F-16 fighter jets to arrive this year. Why not? Well, we're still working with uh, a coalition of of uh, partners to see uh, what third-party transfers can be available in terms of F-16s. We want to get them there as soon as possible, uh, and we're still working with them. The other thing that you have to fold in here is the training piece, and we're also working closely with European allies who have agreed to host F-16 training on their soil. Some of that has to be presaged with English language training. Because everything in the cockpit, all the tech manuals are in English. So you got to make sure that you have enough pilots, that they have the proper English proficiency, and then get them into that training. And we're working very, very closely with allies and partners. And we think that that training is going to be able to get started here relatively soon. All right, John Kirby, thanks so much. Appreciate your time today. Many of you drivers ask every day, what is up with gas prices? Why the current 10-month high could go even higher? Stay with us. In our money lead, gas prices have climbed to a 10-month high, and they keep going up. Today, the national average for a gallon of gas is $3.87 a gallon. That is 31 cents higher than the price of gas just a month ago. CNN's Nathaniel Meyerson joins us now. Nathaniel, what's going on? Why are gas prices so high? Yeah, Jake, there are a couple factors that are driving up gas prices. We've seen production cuts from oil producing states like Russia, Saudi Arabia. Extreme heat has shut down refineries in Louisiana and Texas. Um, So that has impacted supply. And look, we're heading towards hurricane season and hurricanes have a tendency to drive up gas prices. You look back at Hurricane Katrina, some of the biggest spike in, in gas prices happened after Katrina. It's not just gas prices, we should know. Today, mortgage rates hit a 21-year high. Yeah, it's a very difficult time, Jake, to buy a house right now. Mortgage rates up above 7%. um, So housing affordability affordability really tough for families right now. You're looking at about $1,300 more a month for a 30-year fixed mortgage than you were just a year ago. And, of course, really tight housing supply, the housing crunch right now. Big picture, what is the state of our economy right now? Because at this point last year, 72% of economists said we would see a recession by the middle of 2023. Thankfully, we have not yet seen one. Yeah, so this is not the first time that economists' projections have been wrong, Jake. Um, But we're seeing businesses still continue to hire, uh, wages are rising, and consumers are still spending. Retail sales uh, have climbed the last few months. They're up about 3.2% from where they were a year ago. We see people going on trips. They're certainly going to see Barbie at the movies, going to see Taylor Swift concerts. So I think Taylor Swift and Barbie are staving off those uh, economist projections. Got to thank those lovely ladies. Appreciate it. Nathaniel Meyerson, appreciate it to you as well. Coming up next, a recent series of threats to religious institutions and the coordinated effort to stop it. On to our buried lead. That's what we call stories that we think are not getting enough attention. Authorities are currently investigating a series of hoax phone calls and fake bomb threats across the country. Just listen to this list of targets. 25 synagogues in 10 states, plus two offices of the Anti-Defamation League, 
three Jewish day schools. In recent days, the ADL says similar threats have been made at several African-American churches and mosques and a news organization. John Miller is CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst. John, NYPD sources told CNN whoever is behind this may have some expertise in ways to avoid being detected. How so? What are they doing? They've got some technical expertise. They know that authorities are going to be hunting for them online and trying to identify them for the purposes of prosecution. So they use voice over IP or Google phone technology, um, uh, things that are designed to conceal or spoof their IP addresses. They know how to cover their tracks. The threats were initially uh, coming in on weekends, but now the timing appears more random, we're told. Does this sound like someone who feels empowered because so far they're getting away with it? It's not a someone. It is some people. Um, These are likely gamers. This is a competition about who can create uh, the most mayhem and the most disruption. They um, are online and comparing actions. And uh, they started with targeting synagogues where the services were being live streamed so that they could actually watch the, the evacuation, the police response, as they called in these reports of gunmen and attacks and other things. Um, but as you noted, they've expanded to a list of wider targets. Sick. Um, how is this series of threats different than, than others we've seen in the past, do you think? I think it's the, the coordination and the multiple players involved and the fact that it appears to be a competition Um, They are not just calling the location and saying, here's what's about to happen or here's what's happening there. They're making calls to 911. They're making calls to suicide hotline numbers and saying, I'm about to kill myself. And then they say, but this is what I'm going to do. And they lay out some attack that they're on their way to make. They have very layered and detailed storylines that they give to try and get around the doubts of authorities to respond. Meanwhile, The authorities and working with the ADL, who's been very adept at this, um, are working towards deny the objective. If the primary objective is to just cause disruption and panic at these locations, tell everybody what the scenario is, work with the police so that they don't over respond to these things. If it appears to be what it is, it probably is a hoax. All right, John Miller, thank you so much. Coming up, 18 defendants charged with Donald Trump in Fulton County, Georgia. The sweeping criminal indictment also lists 30 co-conspirators who were not named, but we're trying to figure out who they are and give you their names, and that's ahead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, an Idaho Teacher of the Year fleeing her state. I'll talk to her about why she's leaving behind her classroom and Idaho itself. Plus, a week after the wildfires on Maui, over a thousand people remain unaccounted for. Today, some islanders are finally able to return to their homes and witness the devastation for the first time. But leading this hour, we're keeping an eye on all the top developments tied to the legal cases against Donald Trump. But first, CNN has been going through the Fulton County criminal indictment and cross-referencing it with our own reporting to try to identify the 30 unnamed and unindicted co-conspirators In the indictment, there are lots of people we know who testified or who played a role in the Georgia effort by the Trump team who escaped charges. CNN's Zachary Cohen is outside of the Fulton County Jail in Georgia. Zach, one of the most recognizable people CNN has identified from the indictment is Trump political advisor Boris Epstein. 
Yeah, Jake, the details in this indictment make very clear that Epstein is co-conspirator number three, even though his name is obviously not mentioned in the charging document itself. And a couple of the specific details that really make clear it is Epstein is the reference to a November 2020 uh, press conference held by then Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani, where he was talking about various claims about voter fraud. And, you know, based on who we know was in attendance and who wasn't, Epstein is really the only person given the context in that indictment, who they could be referring to. And the next example is a mention of emails that were sent between John Eastman, Ken Cheeseborough, who are both attorneys working for the Trump legal team. And the third recipient we know was Boris Epstein. So really, uh, that allows us to nail down who this individual co-conspirator number three was. An attorney for one of the co-conspirators also apparently confirmed their identity to CNN. That's right, Jake. Um, Former NYPD Commissioner Bernie Carrick, his attorney, confirming to us that he is co-conspirator number five in this indictment. And there are similarly details that also help us identify Carrick as the individual listed as number five. We know that Bernie Carrick was deeply involved with Rudy Giuliani's legal team trying to help find evidence of widespread voter fraud. And we know that Bernie Carrick was specifically um, at a White House meeting in November 2020 where Trump was present. And these and they were talking to a bunch of state legislators from Pennsylvania, trying to pressure them to hold a special session in their bid to overturn the election. So his presence at that meeting, in addition to the confirmation from his lawyer, made clear. We also know that another individual Co-conspirator number six is also at that meeting in November 2020. Phil Waldron, an election denier, a member of Giuliani's team, we were able to find out through context clues and his attendance at that meeting that he, too, is one of the unnamed individuals. Also, CNN was able to piece together the identity of two other unnamed individuals using surveillance video from the Coffee County Election Center. Yeah, Jake, as you know, the Coffee County voting system breach was really a key part of the of the indictment from uh, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. And we had previously obtained hours and hours of surveillance video showing various operatives coming in and out of the elections office. But there's only two individuals who were let into that election office on January 18, 2021. And those are Doug Logan, the Cyber Ninja CEO. We know him from the Arizona audit. And then this man named Jeffrey Lindbergh. And both of them do appear to be these unnamed individuals in this charging document. And we see both of them in the surveillance video that I just mentioned. So that helped us really narrow down the specifics, dates, and the specific times that these people entered the office. It makes clear that these it could only be those two individuals. And we're all, I'm also told that, that based on reporting, CNN thinks that individuals 2, individual 9, individuals 12 through 19, all of them are fake electors from Georgia. Yeah, Jake, obviously three of the fake electors from Georgia face, are facing criminal charges now, um, but the rest of them were listed as unindicted co-conspirators. You'll remember uh, the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, told all the fake electors at the, at the outset of her investigation that they were considered targets in the probe. We're now learning that she's only charging three, but the rest of them do appear to be un, unindicted, unnamed co-conspirators in the indictment. So they do make an appearance in the charging document itself, just not facing criminal charges. All right, some good sleuthing there. Zach Cohen, thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins now. Um, Caitlin, let's talk about this. Is, is the Trump team prepared for the possibility that some of these co-conspirators, unnamed, uh, could enter into a plea agreement with the prosecutor and become witnesses against them in the case? 
I, I mean, I think that's even the concern with those who are named, the co-defendants that are listed here. I mean, certainly there's a lot to choose from. And when I was talking to people in Trump's orbit after you know this indictment came out the other night when we were on air, that was one of the first things they pointed to, the fact that there are these 18 other co-defendants that were listed in the actual charges, but also these 30 unindicted co-conspirators that Zach was just referencing there. I mean, several of them, some of them still work for him, including Boris Epstein. Some of them are still high-ranking officials in the state of Georgia, including the lieutenant governor, Burt Jones. He's unindicted co-conspirator number eight, CNN believes. And so just to look at the magnitude of that and the people who are not just always people who are close to Trump, like a Boris, Boris Epstein, but also a lot of these officials who were in Coffee County, who aren't in Trump's inner circle at all. I think there's a lot of room for some potential plea deals here. Of course, we don't actually know if that's something that some of them are going to pursue, but it's certainly an open and fair question in Trump world. And they themselves were trying to figure out who these names were that Zach was just going through here, trying to identify each of them, you know, not even just in this case, in other cases, Jake, they've also been trying to figure out who the unindicted co-conspirators were and if they're people who were still actively in Trump's orbit. Donald Trump has said that he wanted to hold a a press conference next week uh, where he would release the proof of the voter fraud uh, in Georgia. The conservative Republican governor, uh, Brian Kemp, pushed back on that. Um, There was no uh, fraud that would have changed the outcome of the election, he said. Um, What's the status of that press conference? I think this is something that everyone was understandably skeptical of the moment that Trump said he was going to be having, you know, anything described as a major news conference. And really, a lot of that had to do with Jake. You know, we were talking to people immediately about it, and a lot of people did not know that he was going to post that, people who were advisors to him. So they were surprised. They saw it for the first time when we saw it, when he posted it. And I have been making some calls on this, Jake, and I am now told that it is unlikely that is to go forward in any real capacity if Anything happens on Monday in Bedminster at all when he teased that it's going to happen there at his golf course. In part, that is because we were told that his advisors have warned him and cautioned him against having a press conference on baseless claims that he's been making for three years now that that don't have anything to back them up. But also while he is facing several trials precisely for that. And so uh, we'll see what actually happens on Monday. But right now, Jake, I'm told it is unlikely and there should be real doubt on the idea of any press conference happening at all. Of course, there was already doubt on whether or not there would be actual evidence three years after the election. Yeah, Governor Kemp said nobody in three years has come forward under oath with any evidence at all. Um, When it comes to one of the co-conspirators charged alongside uh, Donald Trump in Georgia, uh, CNN has reported Rudy Giuliani is struggling under mounting legal bills. Um, And you have some reporting uh, about a trip uh, that Giuliani made to to try to get uh, some financial assistance from Trump. Tell us about that. Trump has never wanted to pay Giuliani's legal fees when he was actually representing him or his legal bills now. And what I was told is that a few months ago, Giuliani and his attorney, Bob Costello, went down to Mar-a-Lago and late April, they met with Trump and they were basically making this pitch, Jake, that it is in Trump's best interest to be paying Rudy Giuliani's legal bills. What we have seen come forward in recent days from other attorneys in court is he is cash strapped. He is basically broke, that they say he cannot afford the legal bills that he has right now from that Smartmatic lawsuit. And basically, they went to Trump trying to get him to cover all of Giuliani's legal expenses, given he was doing stuff at Trump's behest. Trump only agreed to pay $340,000 to this data vendor. That might seem like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But when you look at what Giuliani is up against, he has seven-figure legal fees, Jake, right now, and he is really struggling. And so it speaks to, one, something not surprising. Trump does not want to go into his own money to pay for someone else's legal fees. Certainly he's paying a lot of people's already. 
And two, it just speaks to the immense financial stress that Rudy Giuliani finds himself under. And it's not even close to being over because he's facing disbarment proceedings. He's got lawsuits. And now, of course, he's been indicted in the state of Georgia. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Uh, On that subject, Rudy Giuliani, as seen in the original series, is looking into Rudy Giuliani's troubles. It's called Giuliani, What Happened to America's Mayor? It's airing this Saturday night at 8 Eastern, only here on CNN. CNN's Elena Treen joins us now. Um, Let's first talk about uh, the Republican debate next week. If Trump does not debate, um, uh, it would seem very Trumpy to make uh, plans to draw attention away from the debate that he has said there's no sense in him going to to him. Uh, Does he have plans? Uh, He does, or at least he's been throwing ideas out there. My reporting uh, from my conversations with Donald Trump's team is that Trump himself has been throwing out ideas like doing an interview with Tucker Carlson and calling into different cable news shows uh, during the debate as part of some sort of counter-programming strategy. They also say he's very much not likely to attend that debate, of course. But um, they have the caveat that, of course, it's Donald Trump. I've covered him for years. You never know what he's going to do. He could decide in the 11th hour. Of course, there are logistical questions about whether that's even possible. Um, But he's not expected to be on the debate stage. He has also been uh, reaching out to his surrogates, people like Byron Donalds and Matt Gates, both congressmen of Florida and Kerry Lake, uh, to represent him in the spin room. And I'm told some of Donald Trump's advisors will also be there that night. Um, so clearly, even if he's not there, he wants to have some sort of representation. But the other thing I'm hearing, Jake, is that Donald Trump this week even has been telling people in conversations that he thinks Fox News is worried about ratings. He uh, had a dinner last month with Fox News executives, uh, President Jay Wallace and chief executive Suzanne Scott, uh, and they really encouraged him thoroughly to join the debate. And he's been telling people, I remember I talked to someone on Monday who just spoke with him about this, uh, saying that he thinks this means that they're very worried that they're going to do poorly without him there. And so he's feeling very strongly that he doesn't have to show up. All right, Elena Treen, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A week after the fires on Maui, more than 1,000 people remain unaccounted for. Now some residents are returning for the first time to see what is left of their homes. And another investigation that could affect the 2024 campaign? Hunter Biden's. Does President Biden have a blind spot when it comes to his son? That's next. Back with our national lead nine days after those horrific Maui wildfires. 111 individuals have been confirmed dead so far, and more than 1,000 are unaccounted for. That's according to the governor of Hawaii. The burn zone search is not even half over. And now people who have called Lahaina home for decades are trekking back to see what is left. Take a listen. It's hard to take in. You know, just seeing all this devastation, I don't, I don't know what to think. We grew up here. This is home to a lot of us. CNN's Bill Weir is on the island of Maui. And Bill, you've been talking to first responders. Walk us through the process of searching through that massive burn zone in the town of Lahaina. Lahaina. Well, Jake, yeah, I just literally just spoke to an urban search and rescue uh, official who's a veteran of 15 years. He's out of the Houston area. He's been on over 90 disasters, and he says he's never seen anything like this because you've got almost three and a half square miles here where they are searching at the granular level. This is not a hurricane where you know, a few houses on a street have slumped over 
Uh, this, is a pl this is an entire city blocks burned to ash. And we met with one of the dog handling teams from the LA County Fire Department, uh, a dog named Prentice, a black Labrador. A lot of the 40 dogs here are labs. Prentice had a burned foot from yesterday uh, as they, they have to worry about the heat, both from the sun and the, and, the, and the actual ground surfaces as well for these dogs. So it's sort of a painstaking process. They go in with two dogs. If one hits a, something or needs a break, the other one will come in either to confirm it or, or relieve them as they cool off. And so it's just a methodical, very deliberate thing. But they also tell me they're inspired. These people who have come here from over 15 states around the country. L.A. Fire is here. Uh, New York uh, NYPD is here as well. And they're working alongside Maui firefighters and cops who have lost everything and are still out here every day doing this meticulous search work. And really, the we keep coming back to that missing persons number, Jake, you know. In previous disasters, you normally hear that. There's so much confusion. But now a lot of the cell towers are back up. A lot of the power has been restored. You can see the Hawaiian electric crews uh, down here. There's still a couple thousand homes. But you would think by now, eight-plus days after, if, if someone was lost in the confusion, they would have made contact with someone. So we have to come to grips with the idea that this could take a very long time, and there could be hundreds of people who are never identified. Yeah, it's, it's uh, staggering. Um, I, too, was waiting for that number to go down as communication efforts improved, and it's very upsetting that it has not. Um, you've also been uh, tracking active fires on other parts of the island of Maui. How are local officials ensuring that those fires don't, don't cr become a second disaster? Well, they got some much-needed backup. Uh, there's a couple of Chinook helicopters provided by uh, the Pacific Command here, in addition to Maui's choppers, and they're just sort of dropping buckets of water, seawater, pulling water out of swimming pools up near the Kula fire. That's, a, they say, about 80% contained. How they define that around here is if a fire is still burning, but they know they have it contained, that's 100% contained. When they say it's extinguished, it's out, you can not worry about it anymore. So there are still these little hot spots up in the canyons. Right now the winds are cooperating, the trade winds are a little bit gusty, but nothing like the firestorm we saw before. They could really use some rain. And that's the thing you don't realize when you think about the tropical islands of the Pacific, they're so green and lush. On a warmer planet, as the clouds hit the mountains, they suck all the moisture out of that. And then the leeward side, the, on the other side of the island, is just bone desert dry. And that's where all this uh, fuel is coming up. So keeping one eye on that, and of course, so much attention here, looking for souls. CNN's Bill Weir on Maui doing incredible reporting. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And you can help victims of these horrific wildfires in Hawaii. You can head to CNN.com impact. That's CNN.com impact for options to donate, vetted options. You can also text the word Hawaii to this number, 707070. Hundreds of wildfires are also burning in Canada. About 20,000 people are being forced to evacuate from Yellowknife. That's the capital of Canada's Northwest Territories. They need to go by tomorrow afternoon. CNN's Chad Myers is in the CNN Weather Center for us. And Chad, the blaze in Canada, it's expected to reach the city of Yellowknife by this weekend if there's no rain. 
That's right. The wind is now pushing the fire from the west to the east, right into the town of Yellowknife. Now, the problem is, a lot like Ahaina, to the east of Yellowknife is a large lake. There's no way to go out there. You have to go north or south, or northeast or southwest, to get away from this fire line. So they are really pre-staging people here because they know, even though we may be days away, some gusts could take some sparks, move them along, and all of a sudden you don't have days anymore. But look at Canada in general right now for this fire season. 33.8 million acres have already burned. That is 10 times the size of Connecticut. In a normal year, 5.6 should have burned year to date. So we are way ahead of where we could be or should be this time of year. And that is going to continue because these fires are completely out of control. The fire lines are so large now, you can't really get your head around your your fire equipment around one of these fires because the fire lines are go for miles and miles and miles. And so 33.8, last year at this time, only 3.6 million acres had burned. Fires are in the treetops, fires are on the ground. There is Yellowknife, there's the lake I'm talking about, and the hot spots there on the map. That is blowing into Yellowknife proper. Now, there may be some rain, but really what I'm worried more about are these winds, probably somewhere between 25 and 30 miles per hour. And if that blows a spark 20 or 35 miles per hour, all of a sudden, you have these fire lines jumping rapidly. And Chad, you're also tracking Hurricane Hillary, which is forming yes. off of Mexico's Pacific coast and is expected to bring mm-hmm. heavy rain to the southwestern United States. That's unusual. Very. Very unusual for a storm to be a Category 4 and trying to run over Baja, California, into Southern California and possibly even toward Arizona. There is the storm right now, 110 miles per hour. Here's Mexico. There's Puerto Vallarta. There's Cabo San Lucas up there. This storm travels to the north in very warm water, at least for a while, as a Category 4 hurricane. Then it gets into much cooler water and begins to die off. It also is going to suck in this dry air from the Mexican desert and also the dry air along Baja, California. But by the time it gets to Southern California, the forecast still calls for 60 mile per hour winds and an awful lot of rain. The rain may be more of an issue than 60 mile per hour winds because I've watched models today go six to 10 inches of rainfall in places that don't get six or 10 inches of rainfall in the desert for an entire year. So yes, that is certainly possible right through San Diego, especially east of the city, and then all the way to Vegas, and for that matter, L.A., of course, I mean, Santa Barbara County. It's all these areas could pick up very significant flooding rainfalls Sunday into Monday. Chad Myers, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the first Republican presidential debate is less than a week away. So who does Governor Ron DeSantis plan to attack in Donald Trump's absence? The leaked debate strategy. That's next. And we're back with our 2024 lead. Cue the music. Ah, yes, thank you so much. Appreciate it. DeSantis's debate strategy, or possible debate strategy, is being revealed in plain view. The New York Times is reporting that a trove of documents were posted online by the main super PAC backing the Florida governor. They're not allowed to directly coordinate with him, remember. So in one memo, a DeSantis ally outlines four debate must-dos for DeSantis. They include one, attack Joe Biden and the media three to five times. Two, state his positive vision two to three times. Three, hammer Vivek Ramaswamy in a response. And four, defend Donald Trump in absentia in response to a Chris Christie attack. 
My panel uh, joins me now. Uh, Former Michigan Democratic Congressman Andy Levin, good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Defend Donald Trump in response to a Chris Christie attack and hammer Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, Is this good advice? First of all, this is just astounding uh, that a campaign (laughs) or that a super PAC does this. I've never seen anything like it. Um, It's not good news for DeSantis that this happens. And uh, whether it's good advice or not, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, Ramaswamy's uh, coming up in the polls a little bit, so they're freaking out about him. Uh, Some people say he wants to defend Donald Trump so he can really be vice president because that's what his real aim is, because there's no way uh, DeSantis is going to win this nomination. Uh, But it's really quite the spectacle to see this kind of... uh, advice out there in broad public view. Tens and tens of pages of it. It's astounding. Yeah. Um, Republican strategist Kristen uh, Salty-Sanderson, one of the memos describes, uh, quote, Roger Ailes' orchestra pit theory, quoting a well-known maxim that a candidate who lays out a comprehensive plan on foreign policy will draw less coverage than the one who accidentally falls off the debate stage. And the memo lists a recommendation for a Trump-style insult. Take a sledgehammer to Vivek Ramaswamy. Call him fake... Vivek, or Vivek the fake. And just in the last hour, Ramaswamy fired back and called DeSantis a super PAC puppet with prepped lines. Um, What do you make of all this? So on the one hand, voters don't tend to react well to things that are overly choreographed. Recall the demise of the Marco Rubio campaign at the hands of Chris Christie uh, some years ago. You know, he had a line that sounded clearly canned. He had repeated it and eventually got called out on it, and that was curtains. Um, On the other hand, there is some strategy and preparation that has to go into it. And so prepping a candidate to say, hey, this is your main rival, this is the person you've got to take out, that's all pretty normal. I do think, though, that, for instance, the nickname, Fake Vivek, well, actually, it, am, I, am I mispronouncing Vivek. it? Is it's it Vivek? Vivek like cake? Yes. Is it Vivek? Vivek like cake. I apologize. Yeah. So it's fake Vivek. Uh, ah, it rhymes, you see. Now it uh, And I apologize for mispronouncing his fake first name. Fake Vivek. I spent um, a lot of time focusing reason, on Ramaswamy. The reason why I think it won't necessarily work well. is <laughs> when all of you have all these other nicknames that Trump uses, they always speak to something voters kind of already believe about somebody, right? They just amplify it. Right. So I love Jeb Bush, but like low energy Jeb. There's, that didn't come out of nowhere, right? But Republican voters don't think Vivek Ramaswamy is fake. Yeah, now, it's true seem, that he said fair. a lot of things about Donald Trump and Republican policy in the not-too-distant past. They're very different than what he's saying now. But you have to call that out and lay that groundwork before a nickname will stick. So I- I'm a little skeptical, and especially now that the cat's out of the bag, that that would be a smart strategy. And CNN Chief National Affairs Correspondent Jeff Zeleny. Then there was this suggestion urging DeSantis to attack Christie. Uh, with a, quote, line accusing Mr. Christie of appealing mainly to Democrats. And it says, quote, Trump isn't here. This is the proposed line. Trump isn't here, so let's just leave him alone. He's too weak to defend himself here. We're all running against him. I don't think we want to join forces with someone on the stage who's auditioning for a show on MSNBC. That's the proposed DeSantis line attacking Chris Christie. What do you think? Look, these might be decent lines, but now that the cat's out of the bag, I mean, they are, are going to sound a rehearse. But what all of this does is a couple of things. One, it raises the bar for Governor DeSantis to actually pull all this off. It raises the bar for him to go after Vivek Ramaswamy in this way. But it also points out perhaps one of the biggest challenges and flaws of his campaign. That is, he effectively has outsourced virtually everything to his super PAC. That's why this had to be published online so he could see it, so he could see the smart advice, if you will, from Jeff Rowe, who's leading the super PAC, because the 
uh, his campaign can't talk to the super PAC. Right. So this is the challenge. He's outsourced all this field work to the super PAC as well. So this is a central part of this. But back to the actual debate itself. I think the idea of going after Chris Christie like that, who's very practiced on a debate stage, he's done this before, pretty risky to go after him. And at the end of the day, the voters I talk to in Iowa and New Hampshire, other states, uh, want to see uh, some uh, differentiation. If they're turning the page from Trump, that's what they want them to do, turn the page from Trump. So defending Trump by going after Chris Christie, I'm not sure that works. So a couple Twitter reactions from, uh, from journalists out there, Benji Sarlin. Uh, from, I think it's Semaphore, yep. uh, writes, a Florida candidate attacking Chris Christie with a canned line. What could possibly go wrong? That's a little <laughs> reference to Marco Rubio's ill-fated yes. uh, 2016 campaign. Noah Rothman from National Review says, defend Donald Trump in, absten- in absentia in response to a Chris Christie attack, the tombstone read. So the reviews <laughs> for the advice are not particularly positive. Well, there's also a piece of that defense of Donald Trump that calls Donald Trump weak, which I think is really interesting because, again, to the point of insults having to line up with what somebody kind of already believes, there's one thing that Republican voters, even those that don't really like Donald Trump, tend not to think, and it's that he's weak. They, The word strong is something I often hear in focus groups when I'm talking to Republican primary voters about Trump. Now, as an objective matter, you may disagree vehemently with that characterization, but the idea but you're that, talking to Republican that voters. DeSantis yeah. is going to tell Republican voters Trump is too weak to defend himself by not being here, that's a bold strategy. So, Jay, I mean, here's the thing that from a Democratic point yeah. of view, it's like, wow, all, this, the idea of going after Christie because he's occupying the lane that he's decided to occupy yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense. The rest of these people are all just out trying to out-maga each other, and Trump is despite being indicted for the fourth time on so many charges, completely leading the pack. Far, far and away. You know, far and away. Yeah. And, and it, it, it seems like I, as a Democrat, I really want to have another American political party that is, stays within the realm of democracy and that we can really debate issues with. And this, none of this debate seems... I don't think this debate is going to produce anything like that at all. Let's turn to the Biden administration, because, Jeff, you have some new reporting uh, that President Biden uh, might have a blind spot, according to people around him, when it comes to his son Hunter Biden's legal troubles uh, and concerns about how this might impact uh, his a desire to be reelected. What, what do you what do you got? What are you hearing? Well, look, this is something that uh, the president was hoping to uh, put behind him. They were hoping that. Uh, the plea agreement would go through, et cetera. Now there is very likely to be a trial unfolding at the same time as the presidential campaign. Even worse, a second special counsel's investigation on top of the one that's already investigating the president for classified documents. So the point talking to a bunch of advisors is that this is something that is not discussed around the president in his orbit because they do not think voters care about it. They think voters care about the economy, other matters. They're probably right about that. However, we know that this is going to be a central piece of the Republican debate and Republican talking points next week and beyond the Hunter Biden situation. So what do swing voters think of Hunter Biden? As of now, they've never sort of drawn a correlation or blame the president for his son's conduct. They feel sympathy for him, et cetera. But is there a blind spot directly around him and the campaign by not talking about this? It's verboten. You can't talk about Hunter Biden. We'll see. It's, this is definitely going to be a topic on the debate stage yeah. this week. And uh, Kristen, uh, Glenn Kessler from The Washington Post uh, had a fact check about Joe Biden uh, from earlier this month, um, noting that Hunter Biden admitted in court in July 
that he was, in fact, paid substantial sums uh, from Chinese companies. Kessler wrote, Hunter Biden reported nearly $2.4 million in income in 2017 and $2.2 million in income in 2018, most of which came from Chinese or Ukrainian interests. But this, and this directly goes against what Joe Biden said in the debate in 2020 uh, with uh, Donald Trump. Take a listen. My son has not made money in terms of this thing about uh, what are you talking about? China. What you None of that is true. He made a fortune in Ukraine, in China, in Moscow, that is simply and various not other places. True. So it's from two different debates. But, I mean, Trump was right. I mean, he did make a fortune from China and Joe Biden was wrong. I don't know that he was lying about it. He might not have been told by Hunter, but this blind spot is a problem. It's a problem, one, because Republicans aren't going to let it go, that's for sure. But also, these problems are continuing through the legal system. It's not as though this is something that's been settled in other jurisdictions and Republicans are just harping on it. It is an ongoing thing in our courts. It's not going anywhere. This is a blind spot. Does it concern you as a Democrat? Well, I think dads have sometimes and parents sometimes have blind spots about their kids, for sure. And the president may be no exception. But nothing has tied the president to any of Hunter Biden's dealings. There's no whiff of him being involved or him being implicated in it. And uh, it's, you know, I think it's not something the voters care a lot about. All right, my thanks to the panel. Thanks once again. Coming up, she was once Idaho's Teacher of the Year, but now she's leaving the profession and leaving the state of Idaho. I'm going to ask her why now. She was voted Idaho's Teacher of the Year, but a few months later, she left behind her fourth grade classroom at Treaty Rock Elementary School in Post Falls. That's near the border with Washington State in the western Idaho. And she left the state of Idaho for good after 12 years. Karen Lauritsen says after she was named Teacher of the Year, local right-wing media outlets attacked her, going through her social media accounts, calling her a, quote, left-wing activist and accusing her of promoting gay pride and Black Lives Matter and transgenderism in her classroom. I'm joined now by Idaho's 2023 Teacher of the Year, Karen Lauritsen. Karen, first of all, tell us what happened after you were named Teacher of the Year, which my understanding is that the governor ultimately decides after a thorough process, uh, and the governor's a Republican. Well, it's actually um, the state superintendent um, who makes the ultimate decision, but she was a Republican as well. Um, But right after I was named, um, I was super excited. I was very thrilled to share it with my students and my community. Um, Right after I was named, however, um, like you said, uh, conservative um, news outlets in Idaho started putting out all of this horrible press um, saying that I was influencing the students in my classroom um, in negative ways and that I was, you know, not a person who represented Idaho and um, the type of Idaho that they wanted and that I was pushing things in my classroom, like you said, um, such as transgenderism and LGBTQ issues, of which I never um, spoke of in my classroom at all. And um, there were some things that they said that I I did do in my classroom, like social emotional learning, which is true because I think that that's best practice. Um, But a lot of what they said was absolutely false um, and, you know, put a lot of uh, parents, I think, off what I did in my classroom. And ultimately, 
um, I think sowed a lot of distrust um, for me in our in my community. So the Idaho Tribune and Action Idaho um, said they went through your social media pages. They found posts uh, where you were attending uh, LGBTQ community pride events. They looked through who you followed uh, on social media, which I guess included some drag queens posts where you say critical race theory is not taught in Idaho schools. Um, I, I mean, you're allowed to have a personal life. It's just I, I, I don't understand exactly what the argument is being made, that you are not allowed to have views like this. Did you, 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 you didn't teach anything having to do with LGBTQ or Black Lives Matter or anything in the fourth grade classroom, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I was, you know, a, a proponent of, you know, all students making their own choices, but I never spoke of any of those things in my classroom. Um, in fact, I did say that CRT was not taught in Idaho schools, um, but all of these news outlets said that I was teaching it in my classroom. And I actually, you know, had parents asking me if I was teaching these things in my classroom, which, you know, hurt because, you know, of course I would not speak of these things in a fourth grade classroom. That's completely inappropriate. Right. I mean, the fourth graders are about 10 years old, right? Um, you've, been, you, you, you've been a teacher for more than 20 years. Um, is, it, is it tougher to be a teacher today because of um, all this misinformation and uh, this, this sentiment that teachers are, are bad guys and they're, and they're jamming you know, far left wing agendas down into the brains of, of little kids. Is that is that making it tougher to be a teacher these days? I, I think it can be. And, it, and I think a lot depends on the community in which you teach. Um, you know, for me, it's, you know, I have devoted my entire life to kids and I want all of my students to be the best people they can be. And I want to bring out the best in them. I don't want them to be versions of me. I want them to be themselves. And that's what I've always tried to do as an educator. But I feel that, you know, especially in the past few years, um, there's been a lot that's happened where um, as educators, our professional expertise is not trusted. And especially as an educator who's taught for 20 years and, you know, was named as one of the best educators in Idaho, I, I would hope that my professional expertise would be trusted and respected. And it really hurt when it wasn't. Well, I hope you don't give up teaching um, because I'm sure those fourth graders got a lot out of your, your lessons. Thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate it. And we should note, CNN reached out to the school and the school district. We have not uh, heard back. Karen uh, Lauritsen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. One man's desperate attempt to get the attention of the Biden administration. We're back in a moment. More in our world lead now. Russian state media says that a Russian-born U.S. citizen has been charged with espionage. Gene Spector was already serving a sentence in Russia on bribery charges, also according to Russian reports. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us in Moscow. And, and Matthew, last hour, White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said he had no further information on Spector. They were just trying to get up to speed. What are Russian outlets reporting? Well, I mean, they're not reporting a lot because there isn't much information out there. We know from Russian court documents and Russian state media uh, that the Lefortovo uh, courthouse in the centre of Moscow 
um, charged um, Gene Spector, this U.S. citizen, originally uh, born and raised in Russia and then becoming a U.S. citizen later, uh, under Section 276 of the Russian Criminal Code, which is espionage. But no further details because of the security situation around that kind of serious charge. No further details were, uh, were made public. Uh, there's been a lot of um, uh, detail given in Russian press, though, about the fact that he's in prison at the moment, um, serving a sentence in Russia uh, for bribery. Uh, back in 2021, he was found guilty of uh, bribing uh, an assistant to a deputy prime minister uh, here in, in, in Russia. It's not clear whether the espionage charges are connected with that or not. The U.S. embassy uh, says it doesn't have any information either. But, but clearly, you know, as there's all this talk of more uh, prisoner swaps and things like that, this is another potentially uh, card in Russia's hands. Matthew Chance in Moscow for us. Thanks so much. Also in the world lead today, a passionate plea outside the White House from an, uh, an Iranian-American man. For seven years now, he's been begging the U.S. government to help his father, who has been detained in Iran. This week, he staged a hunger strike and protested outside Joe Biden's White House and at the State Department, where CNN's Kylie Atwood learned more about his father's story. Shahab Dalili planned to come back to the U.S. in 2016 after visiting Iran for his father's funeral. But on the way to the airport, he was detained. When news reports broke last week about a brewing deal between the U.S. and Iran to secure the release of five American detainees, two of whom are still unknown to the public, his son, Darian, thought his father might be headed home. We were getting somewhat hopeful and to have that all basically get crushed last week Thursday, that was heartbreaking. Shahab was charged with aiding and abetting a hostile nation. It's the same charge that Siamak Namazi faces. Namazi is one of the five Americans who U.S. officials are hoping will be home by next month. But when top U.S. officials said the group of detainees they were working to release were all deemed wrongfully detained, it quickly became apparent that the 60-year-old behind bars at Evan Prison was not in the mix. Shahab has not been formally labeled as such by the State Department. Darian quickly emailed the State Department last week in protest. I included this line on the bottom. You are leaving my father there to die. And I think that got a reaction. He got a call from a top State Department official, but still no answers as to specific efforts underway to secure his father's release. We assess the circumstances of detentions and look for indicators of wrongful detention, and um, when appropriate, uh, we will make a determination. Shahab is an Iranian citizen and a legal permanent resident of the U.S. He was a trading ship captain in Iran before he retired in the U.S. with his wife and his two children. My emotion is just exhaustion. I have been in contact with so many people over the past seven years trying to tell my father's story. This week, Darian is protesting outside the State Department, even though he's clear-eyed about the near-term possibility of his father's release. The prospect of getting him on that same plane as everyone else, that's unlikely. That, that's, that's, getting, that's getting lower every day. It's not zero. I'll never say it's zero until that plane lifts off. Now, Shahab was initially put into solitary confinement. He's no longer in solitary confinement, but uh, just this week, he and his son, Darian, both went on a multi-day hunger strike as they try and attract more attention to this case. Jake? All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Thank you so much. Coming up next, who could have the highest grossing tour ever?
Are you ready for it? Taylor Swift's Eras Tour is poised to break $2 billion, and that's just in North America. Long story short, according to August survey data, the tour is expected to gross $2.2 billion in ticket sales. That's for both the legs you just finished, as well as the second North North American leg next year. The average price of pre-sale and first sale tickets was $455, with an average audience size of 72,000 Swifties per show. With numbers like that, Taylor Swift has earned a spot in a category all her own, touring Taylor's version. Our coverage now continues with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 